as above, so below. Welcome to Connecting with Coincidence. I am your host, Bernard Beitman, MD. I'm the founder of the Coincidence Project. I'm also its president, and our intent is to encourage you to tell each other coincidence stories. Uh, a lot of people are feel isolated uh, in their synchronicity experiences, and we provide a third a, a gathering uh, the third Saturday of every month uh, on Zoom called the Coincidence Cafe, uh, where you can join us at, at eleven a.m. Eastern time and tell other people your coincidence stories, people who would like to tell you their coincidence stories. You just go to thecoincidenceproject.net or my website, coincider.com, C-O-I-N-C-I-D-E-R.com. A coincider is someone who experiences lots of coincidences. And uh, you'll find your way to uh, the, the Coincidence Cafe. The story I'm telling today is about birds. Uh, a lot of birds, there's a lot of birds in people's people's stories uh, about meaningful coincidences. A lot of birds. Um, birds show up sometimes when people are dying or have died, um, but sometimes they show up in kind of funny ways. And this happened to me uh, on Cortez Island. I was visiting an old friend in the summer of 2019, and Cortez Island is off the coast of Vancouver Island and is one of the jewels of Canada's British Columbia. As my friend Dina and I walked down the driveway to Andy's house, there's a bunch of trees lining the driveway and there are four or five ravens in the trees. And as we started walking toward his house, the ravens got up kind of in a, in a pack, uh, a flock ahead of us and led us to his house. They were just kind of leading, leading the way to Andy's house. And it was pretty funny. They stayed with us. And then after we got to the house, they just, dis they, they disappeared. So th there's a connection between birds and people that people that we've known for a long time. Uh, people, looked at birds in the old days as omens for uh, what might happen in the future and this was a simple version of that our guest our guest today is Sheila Salama who is uh, joining us from uh, Connecticut uh, she received her medical degree from State University of New York Downstate Medical School in New York City and completed her internship residency in psychiatry as well as a fellowship in child psychiatry at King's Hospital. Since the early 1990s, Dr. Salama has acquired several certifications in non-pharmacological modalities. She is not your standard psychiatrist. She can facilitate the healing from acute and chronic traumatic events, as well as others, other disorders. And she does, unlike most psychiatrists, distance healing. Uh, she's involved with uh, the Free Yazidi Foundation and is a consultant to psychologists that treat the Yazidi population in a displaced camp in Iraq. She's a wonderful woman 
and you'll be pleased to meet her. But we're going to start off with her story about how she went from Iraq to to Connecticut as a child psychiatrist. And it's not the usual journey of like, uh, but you wait, wake up in the United States and you go to medical school. This is quite a story. So Sheila, thank you very much for joining us. And I look forward to hearing your stories. Okay. So I, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm very pleased and honored that you uh, invited me to speak with you. Um, so I will start with uh, the background because without the background, nothing will make sense. So I was born actually in Cairo, Egypt, and um, in 1943. So I'm eight years old. And um, um, at that time, the uh, I, the Jewish population uh, was like maybe a hundred thousand Jews in in Cairo. Um, my Parents really uh, were very disappointed. My mother, in particular, was very disappointed in having a girl, and she. Um, I was the third girl, and she was really disappointed. So she said some terrible things to me, and I really disowned her when I was three, and uh, and I started um, de developing my own sense of self and my own path and I refused to be um, influenced by other people. So I, anyway, so what happened is um, there was a, um, uh, a war and uh, all the Jews from Egypt had to be, uh, they all left within a few years in 1960, uh, in 1956 to 1960, everybody pretty much left Egypt. Um, do you want to know the circumstances? Yes. Okay. Uh, um, so the, first, the King Farouk was deposed in 1954. And then there was uh, Nasser took over um, the, um, he became the, the president. And he wanted to take the Suez Canal uh, from uh, uh, from the international organization that uh, 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 he wanted to take the Suez Canal out. Yeah. And the Suez well, Canal. He, there was the 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 uh, the rules was the rule was um, for a hundred years uh, the Suez Canal would be international, and he wanted to nationalize it and take over prematurely the Suez Canal, the control of the Suez Canal. So the British, the French, and the Israelis were all part of this war, and as a result. Um, he expelled Nasser, expelled all the foreigners, and uh, and the Jews were also kind of thought to be spies, so they were all suspect. So a lot of them uh, were incarcerated, or they were expelled, or it was a whole big mess. So uh, the whole, all the Jewish people had to leave. So we left in nineteen. Um, 58, we went to Paris, and then I ended up in New York. Now the story starts. So uh, it, it took two years to get the visa to the United States uh, because it was a lottery, and every month they would take a certain number of Egyptian Jews. So far, so good? Okay. So 
just uh, as a background is my parents were not happy at all with me being doing so well in school. They were very concerned that um, I would uh, cause my sisters to feel bad because I was shining and they were kind of floundering. So it was very uh, scary for them to have a daughter like that. So this is what happened. Um, so I arrived in, in New York, uh, July 5th, 1960. And I was about 16 and a half. And I was trying to walk across the Brooklyn Bridge. So I looked at the map and I said, how do I get across the Brooklyn Bridge? And I couldn't figure it out because the, normally you go to the bank of the river, the Nile or, or the Seine or whatever, then you just cross over. But yeah, the, the bridge looked like it was three miles to get on the bridge. And as I was looking at the map, I saw Downstate Medical College. And it was almost like uh, it, like a light bulb saying, oh, I'm gonna study medicine. It was just like that, a matter of fact, and I had never, never had that thought before. And I never changed my mind. And I, coincidence is I ended up in that medical school, although I applied to 13 other medical schools, that was the one that accepted me. Now, the other interesting thing, of course, my parents were, drove me crazy. They didn't want me to go to college. I had to go behind their backs. I, um, luckily, I, City College at that time was almost free, so I could manage. Um, and, um, and then I, after my applications, I had to wait and wait and wait for, for one rejection after the other because I was brand new in the country. And although my sciences were excellent, I always had A's, I didn't have literature, political science, and all the other courses because I, I had just arrived in the country. So Downstate Medical School was the only one that accepted me, um, but I was on a waiting list. And they said, please, please, um, if you don't get in this time, reapply. And I knew I couldn't reapply. It was just too much for me to, to even get to that place with my parents fighting me. And so as time went by, my, uh, my courage almost just dissipated. I, it's like not only the wind got out of my sails, but I packed up my sails. I said, this is not gonna happen. And I was, I just got a job at Cornell. And um, this is what happened. A week before school started, I get, uh, the, I get the, the uh, acceptance and I threw it in the garbage. And to tell you how the universe works, it's just really amazing. I threw it in the garbage. And what I used to do is during lunch, instead of going to lunch, I would go to the morgue and watch two hand surgeons practice on cadavers. And I became friends with them. You know, I would sit with them and watch. And so that day I said, oh, I got this letter of acceptance. And they jumped up and said, oh, congratulations, congratulations. I said, no, I'm not going. What do you mean you're not going? I threw it in the garbage, it's too late. I, I can't, in, in a week I don't have money, I, I have to, 
even with a full scholarship, I, I couldn't gather myself to get housing, a microscope, all, all of that. It, it's impossible. They yelled at me. They stopped their dissecting and and they were on my back. You get this um, letter from the garbage. And so I don't know how I managed within a week to get, you know, housing. And I, I have to have a, a loan. Since I was stateless, it was hard to get a loan. Um, but my brother-in-law signed for signed for the loan so I finally managed to pull myself together in one week to get get started so that's the story of the medical school because I almost almost gave up on my dream and if these two guys didn't didn't um, insist on me getting it out of the garbage which you know it was like a almost a miracle well, let, let's let's look at the, the coincidence part of of this. Um, the the most the more most amazing thing is uh, trying to cross the Brooklyn Bridge and uh, looking at downstate and saying, "This is where I'm going to go." I mean, and this is I'm going to be a doctor, and that's where you went. Um, that's where you went for for undergraduate, and that's where you went for uh, medical school. So you you had somehow um an epiphany we'll say uh, an, an illumination that you and downstate were in a, in a marriage uh to be uh and that's that that was fundamental what was also fundamental is your your determination through it all you just told how you had to make things happen uh just by sheer will uh, you had to keep going uh, you had to go from Egypt to, to New York. He had to fight your parents. But those are all part of your own de determination. So one of the key things about how, how coincidences are caused, as we were talking about before we got on the, got on the show, is um, what causes coincidence. And a big part of what causes coincidences is personal agency. There's too much emphasis on trying to say it's quantum physics or something else uh, or the universe or random. Uh, there's all there's all mystery and there's random, but there's also you. There is a very much personal agency. And what you didn't say was that you were somehow weird enough to go to the morgue and watch hand surgeons do surgery, uh, to practice surgery. That's a strange thing for someone to do. Yeah. Uh, uh, so that 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 as the coincidence thing goes is being in the right place at the right time but why were you why were you there and i call it human gps that intuitive ability to get where you need to be without knowing how you got there well you know how you got there now you also didn't know why you were there you were just interested so you were able in two instances that we've got here to be able to say downstate seems like something i'm going to be a doctor and for, we don't go through the reasons they don't matter you ended up going to the morgue and watching these guys who convinced a flagging uh, energy person i can't do this in a week get my microscope get housing but you can because you're a determined woman i can see that and i hope our audience can see that and you that was not the big part of it these guys made you do it uh you could do That's it and and I, you i have to say i if they weren't there i i had i was completely deflated and 
You're and completely different. I had lost my momentum. And they that gave pushed me into it. And they gave they I'll say they ignited you again is what they did because you've got it uh, and you still have it. So they ignited you, but you still had to do it and you did it. So it, these are two common coincidence forms where you get uh, some kind of a sense that this is right and you don't know why, but you know it's true and you believe it and you trusted it and you knew it somehow we know we know and that's tough and then you got to the hand surgeons practicing which that's a rare event i mean that's a low thing and you had a lot to do with that so so now that you've told us your history which i the rest of it is very important uh, for people to hear as well and i'm glad we talked about it but now you're a private practicing psychiatrist in western connecticut practice out of your home and you and you travel to the big city of new york city hour and 10 minutes away and you have a private practice in new york city where all this began for you and you're you have weird experiences as a psychiatrist um why don't you tell us some about something about the the weird stuff that happens and with some emphasis on meaningful coincidences okay so uh, so I'll, I'll start with a quick one, a quick story, because probably everybody had that uh, experience. So uh, one day I mm, was working and the, uh, the name of a patient that I had seen seven years before that I had terminated with flashed into my mind. I said, hmm, why am I thinking about this patient? Um, and I, I hesitated to call her because, it, you know, what, am I drumming business or something? So I didn't call. Two days later, she calls me and I said, oh, my God, I, I thought of you two days ago. It was Wednesday at two o'clock. She said, that's when I needed you. I was having a miscarriage. <laughs> so I, how I got the signal, she probably was thinking of me and didn't have time to call it. But it was amazing that the synchronicity that, that I picked up on her vibes. Uh, wow. let, let, let's 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 uh, let's just yeah. pause on that one. Yeah. I I wish we could train um, all helping professionals, including psychiatrists, psychologists, therapists, to know that what you just described is not an uncommon experience. Mm. Out of the blue, you begin thinking of someone, and that person then contacts you. That's one of the most common coincidences uh, we've got from our from our research thinking of someone but it ha as it happens for a therapist or psychiatrist it's a little different i'm starting to think of a patient i haven't seen for a year and she likes these certain kind of apple um and i know that and i've got these apples and i bought them because this is the time they're out and now i've been thinking about her more uh, and wondering about her and it's a you i have the same fear it's like drumming up business which i don't really need but i there's something about something stirring up in me so it is a small coincidence that you're bringing up that story when i'm thinking about somebody now uh there there's a there's a bigger part of this but it's it's what we call what happened with you and this patient we call that telepathy yes, yes. and i have a model for how to explain telepathy using the yeah. psychosphere and it's not that complicated and it has something to do with the true self now you've mentioned uh before we were before we got on the show 
you mentioned the true self or the higher self. Could you tell us if those are the same thing and what you mean by those terms or one of those terms? Um, I, I, um, the, the higher self to me is the, the guidance we receive from our soul, I guess. I, I, I don't always want to well, use it in terms. Just look at what, look at what you yeah. did. Yeah. You were higher. Yeah, it is over there. It's in uh, in esoteric healing. The soul is about a few feet above the crown. The crown. The crown. So this is why. So I think we're channeling something from the uh, the. I don't know the, the. From the the field, from the field, we can channel things from the field. And, and I I label that field the psychosphere, our mental yeah. atmosphere, and okay. it's real. It's not something that isn't, it's something that we can test and yeah. examine. And it's between the ionosphere and the Earth's crust where a lot of it takes happen. A lot of this happens. I'll so, put it in your book. You can <laughs> look at it in the book. But, so the, the higher self, as you point up, mm -hmm. is somehow able to get a, a better perspective on the place that you are in in this life right now. Mm. And if you're open to your higher self, you can get information from it that you wouldn't get otherwise. Okay. Uh, we can, we can leave that alone. So tell us, oh. so tell us some more of the, your, your oh. weird experiences. Okay. In all right. So, um, so I was in my office and the patient just canceled. This is another coincidence. Um, patient canceled. I'm momentarily annoyance. And then I said, Oh, let me go to the park. And normally I just crossed uh, to go to Central Park, I cross the street. And then this time I said, no, go this, go another block, go the other entrance. So I go to 96th Street instead of 97. And I meet a young Italian neighbor. I had just met her in the lobby or something. But this time she looked really distressed. So I asked her, what, ha what happened to you? So... Uh, she says well, that she's pregnant and she was planning on having an abortion and she's very upset and all that. So I said, why don't you come on and let's go talk. So because I had this opening in my schedule and I went the wrong direction and I, it's almost like I was guided to go and say, you don't need to see this patient today. You need to help this woman. So I get her in and we have an EMDR session. And at the end of it, she decides not only not to have the uh, the abortion and to get married to this guy from from our discussion. So I changed the lives of somebody that it was. It seemed like totally random, but I think God makes my schedule. After that, I said, if somebody doesn't show up, means I'm supposed to be doing something else, and that's it. It's no longer. Uh, you know, I, I I feel totally at ease and at peace with that. Uh, th this um, hearing a, a voice or feeling that maybe you should go this way than that, that is another standard uh, coincidence story. Mm. Uh, and that you go that way because 
it turns out to be a good thing for you. That's happened to me several times and other people too. So you, what you're doing is illustrating a lot of the, the standard coincidence yes. things that we talk that we talk about, but you're doing it within the context of medicine and that's wonderful. So please keep- yeah. I have please. another thing which, but I have to teach you, uh, you know, uh, a little bit about the muscle testing. So I use muscle testing to guide me in therapy. So this one lady comes to me, um, I want EMDR, she had- a, Explain a, EMDR yeah. to our audience. Okay. EMDR is a, a trauma um, treatment that um, uses uh, bilateral, it's a, the protocol is using uh, alternating bilateral stimulation. And usually in, in the beginning it was eye movements, but then we found that we can use touch, so I can work with a blind person with touch alternating, or sound. You can use any modalities, or all three together. So she came because she wanted EMDR to treat her uh, sexual abuse from the age of four to sixteen, and it was a, you know, very elaborate. But I muscle tested, and the body said no to EMDR. When I muscle test, I said, what's the best modality to treat this? this? And it said no to EMDR, but it said yes to another modality. So I said, you know, I'm sorry, I can't do EMDR. Your body said no, uh, I, I, I can't, we can't do it. But, uh, but we can do this other modalities, TAT. Uh, so she said, no, no, I want EMDR, I want EMDR, my friend. I said, you're not your friend. This is, uh, this is not the right modality for you today. So, so we do the other one and she starts crying for the first time. She said, I never ever cried about this abuse. And, uh, and she said, look, look, I'm crying. This is amazing. And then just as she was leaving the session, she told me that she had tried EMDR with two different therapists for a number of weeks and she jammed each time. She couldn't get, it, it never worked for her. So had I listened to her, okay, you want EMDR, here it is, I would have been the third failure, and either I'm no good or the method is no good, neither of which is correct. It was not the right modality for her at that time. A year later, she could do EMDR, but not then. So that is how I guide. I don't waste time. When I work, I always check with the body and see... Um, Actually, the body is the higher self, but I tell them the body so they don't get spooked. <laughs> but so the I I uh, can release blocks before before uh, we start. I said it's, it's okay for us to release this problem, and what's the best modality? And then it glow it goes and it flows very easily. That that is uh, that is pretty um, clear. Uh, that you're able to do the muscle testing to come up with a treatment uh, that the body knows and somehow the body and I'll say the higher self are connected with each other you yeah. know the, you get the mind out of the way uh, so that the that you can get the information in uh, I'll call it an intuitive way but there's various forms of intuition and you're able to pick up on them and that's, that's a wonderful thing to be able to do it saves time and money and 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 aggravation for sure. And aggravation for sure. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, because you're sitting and there's nothing is it's not going. 
Uh, and sometimes the blocks are, uh, they're very unconscious and I can isolate the blocks and release them. The block is, it's not safe to release this problem. I will not get uh, get over this problem. I don't deserve, I will not, or it's not possible. There's many, many blocks. I release them one by one and then it, then, then I select the modality. I mean, the body selects, not me. I, well, I then the me. body tells you which modality to go yeah. for. But you're the one who's listening, so you have to listen or see or or discover. Yeah. Now, I want to tell you about something completely different, and I don't know if it fits. Um, It'll fit. Okay, because it's, it's a different uh, aspect. So uh, one day, I got this woman who's been going from therapist to therapist for two years, and the issue was her son died in a plane crash in Halifax, and she hadn't been able to to resolve that in herself because uh, because uh, a year before he died, they had had a fallout and they hadn't stopped talking. Uh, and so she um, was going for therapist to therapist to release the the grief that she had, an enormous grief. So. Three times I tried to help her release um, the with I, the minute I would mention the name of her son, she would start sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. It was the end of the session. We couldn't do a thing with it. So finally, after the third time, I said, "I I uh, I think you need to see this woman, Conchetta Bertoldi, who is a psychic, and maybe she can help you because." Nothing I know how to do. I, I, I couldn't touch it. I couldn't get near it because she would start sobbing and sobbing and the rest of the session I would be putting her back together so she could leave. That was the end of the session. So so I warned her, uh, Conchetta never answers the phone. You leave a message and then she will call you back and maybe you'll get an appointment in three months. This is how busy she is. So I gave her the phone number. She calls to say, where are you in New Jersey? Because she only, we only had the phone number. We didn't have the address. The woman picks up, Conchetta picks up, and she says, something made me pick up the phone. And she started channeling Michael. And he wants to, he wants to tell me how sorry he is and this and this and that. And, and, and the, whole, the whole session came out of her because he couldn't wait for an appointment. He was with us in the room, and he he said, "We're not we're not waiting six months or whatever. I I want to talk to my mother now." So she was telling all this. My my patient was like, "I, I just wanted to know where you were in New Jersey," <laughs> and then she finishes, and this woman, Sheila Shirley, she's a very wise woman. She doesn't even know it. So that was like. The icing on the cake, but Conchetta never knew me. I never talked with her. I just had a card somebody gave me, I, and I passed it on. But the thing is, finally, the patient was able to finish the grieving. She was able to get the ashes and finish, and never again. She 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 stopped the crying. Well, let, 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 I mean, good <laughs> clinical stories are the patient's in trouble and then they're okay. I mean, that's the standard thing. But the way in the middle that makes the difference here, uh, the middle part of this was that uh, you recognized you couldn't help. 
Yes. And then you gave a phone number for somebody that you didn't really know, but had a card for, who was very busy, who feels like she's like you going for that walk and running into that woman and and helping her by going the the way you didn't usually go. Uh, And here this woman picks up the phone, the psychic, and knows what, and she's intuitively able to do that and then is able to help connect uh, the patient with her son, Michael, and uh, that settles the problem. So again, it was a couple of different intuitions in operation. One of them has for you saying, I can't do this. And it's important for all helpers to know when they can't help and to say, I can't help. It's one of the most important things we can do is that this is beyond me. And the second part of this is that you were able to give her a name out of nowhere, really, and that picked up the phone and connected her with Michael. But the the biggest part of this for many of our audience, not everybody, is that the that the psychic um, could channel Michael. And then Michael was ready to get in there and talk and talk and wanted to needed a telephone to get through to his mother. Uh, and she provided it. And but the fact that you can channel is part of what is happening to me these days is that I've been skeptical about channeling. I mean, I've heard plenty of stories about them, but it's kind of like coming on me more than it ever has before. I'm hearing channeling, channeling, channeling. So I'm my, my way of going through this life uh, and with the synchronicity business is they, they give me about what I can take and mm-hmm. they allow me to, collect the evidence and there's nothing more clear to me than the evidence that you just gave me the story that you as a clinician were able to tell me it's so clean the way you said this Sheila and described it and it fits with what one of my patients who was being contacted by uh, a guy who killed himself accidentally and felt really bad about it and was trying to connect with her Mm -hmm. Um, but I told her I can't help her with that. And she found somebody who could help her um, do something or help him better than she could. Um, but he w- sometimes these spirits get connected to people here and you can't get rid of them because uh, they're, they're stuck. So you need somebody who knows how to say, it's enough, let go, go to the next level. Now, this is straight, this is crazy talk in American psychiatry, what we just did. Yeah, I know. But I always felt the psychiatry was missing a leg. <laughs> it's like a stool with two legs, and the third one is a spiritual component, which is too you want you want to be so con- you know concrete that you don't want to I- introduce anything mysterious or or that that is perhaps we cannot have words for it. Um. Well, that's what I'm doing. Sheila. Good. I'm glad you are. That's what I'm doing. It's like, hey, guys, there's weird stuff going on here. Yeah, Let's pay yeah. attention to it. Yeah. Uh, what about the what about other instances of the use of meaningful yeah. coincidences, okay. synchronicity in well, your practice? I, I have so many. OK, uh, the, the, this one was a patient who um, whose fiance died in Twin Towers uh, on 9-11. And uh, so 
inexplicably he had broken up with her a week before and she couldn't understand why he broke up with her and and uh, and, and so we had a lot of you know to release the grief and trauma and then one day she came she came to me and she said i think i'm going crazy because when when there's nobody here i go to the living room and i smell his cologne in my living room it's like i i don't get it and then in the shower, I feel he's behind me. It's like he's wrapping his arms around me. I, I'm going crazy. And the other day I was running and then my Walkman put the song that we used to listen to together. So what, like, what's wrong with me? So I had just read a, a, a paragraph or a, a chapter on Michael Newton's book. Uh, Michael Newton's, you know about him? He's a psychologist who does life between lives, and he has two books. The first one is Journey of Souls, and the 15 years later, Destiny of Souls. So that chapter was in the Destiny of Souls. I had just finished reading it. So I bring it to the session, and I read to her that the souls are capable of doing those things. And I finish by saying, you have real knowledge, I only have book knowledge. This is so the thing is everything she described was in the book. And I read it to her. So the the coincidence is I had just acquired that uh that knowledge myself. Yeah, and she confirmed uh, it. That's that reading something as a clinician and then having it uh appear in front of you is one of my favorite ideas to try to teach physicians of all kinds um, that this can happen just be open to it that you could read something and then that that problem or that issue walks into your office and uh, I'm so glad that you tell us about it there's more to it because of the specifics of this patient smelling his cologne Yes, There's but, a, and there was nobody there. It couldn't be been somebody else who had the same cologne. You know. Well, there was a, a person named Padre Pio. Yes. Uh, you know that. Yes. Uh, and people would smell smell roses. roses when they were around him. Yes. <laughs> I mean, when he wasn't there, but that yes. was yes. that was him manifesting. Yes. You know, I I don't, I don't know if I, I don't know how representative I am of anything, but. You're open-minded. That's what I like about you. I'm open-minded, but you can't have your mind too open. It's like you get too much in there sometimes. And so I'm, I've got kind of this filter in there. And this filter is to be able to mm -hmm. take information mm -hmm. and write it down. I mean, what I've done is this book, this Meaningful Coincidence book, is write stuff down so that I can organize it and in a comprehensible and kind of back it up with experience. It's a, I'm an mm -hmm. academic, uh, recovering academic. So that's what, yeah. that's, that's what I, that's what I do. But this, this Padre Pio story in, I mean, kind of with the cologne is like, uh, okay. The, the souls can do many, many things to help their, the loved ones. And with, with the grief, this, with the grief. Yes. With the grief and, and to show them that we're still here. We, we didn't completely die where our souls are around. <laughs> And it's, some of them make flowers bloom after the funeral that yeah. shouldn't bloom in winter. I mean, uh, yeah. or the, or their favorite uh, 
plant grows uh, and shouldn't be growing uh, right now. It's it's this stuff. What you're saying, she was really helping me believe this stuff more. Okay. Uh, believe I have one personal story which I think I should share. I have many stories, but this story I I was at the workshop with Christine Page. You know Christine Page. She's a psychiatrist and she's very much involved in astrology and she just gives workshops. She's very interesting so and very spiritual. So the workshop was only nine people and um, we would uh, do our, we'd take turns. And, um, and so it, it was Saturday and Sunday, half a day on Sunday. So on Saturday, my turn comes and I go to the circle where you have the family and your profession and uh, there's, you know, all the houses of, of the astrology. And I go to the, the family house and I said, for the first time in my life, I feel absolutely indifferent to my father. I don't have grief. I don't have sadness. I don't have longing. I don't, I don't feel anything. I don't feel guilt. I don't feel this. Um, anyway, and, uh, and the next day, I come a little early, and another participant comes a little early. So we both came early. And she says, um, is your father's name sought with S? I said, yes, Simon. And he, she says, you know, he came to me at 3 a.m. And he, he was very eager. He said, you have to give her this message. It's my last chance. It's like my, my last chance. In, indeed, Monday was, uh, Sunday was the last chance because we would, she was able to see him, and and hear him. So he, um, told her like that uh, that the reason he behaved towards me the way he did is because of his culture and his background, and that he didn't know what to do with me, etc. So he wanted basically to apologize for his behavior. Um, and he wouldn't let her sleep until she promised to keep the message to me. Uh, and even the dogs were annoyed with him because he kept them up. So this is what she said. And while you were talking in the circle, he kept trying to get my attention. He was standing behind you. And I kept shushing him. I said, I'm listening. Don't bother me. And, and he said, she said, who are you anyway? She said, I'm her father. He said, not now. So she shushed him away and he woke her up in the middle of the night to give her the message for me. And it was very touching that he would find his way to the workshop to give me a message because there was no other way for him to give me a message. So that's it. And now we're totally at peace. How would you like that story? A little bit too far, too far out. That happened. No, 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 no. It's it's a, uh, it just illustrates how how difficult it is for some of these spirits to get to us. Uh, yes, because I can't see them. I can't. Uh, I wish I could. It would be great because some people have this gift. I don't have this gift. I have other gifts, but not this one. Some people can see the spirits hanging around. Yeah, she was a psychic person, and she was, and and he knew who to go to to catch their attention. He knew she could see him. The other participants didn't see him. We had, oh, the, there were nine of us. 
How, how do you understand the need for resolution by the spirit up there? What what happens after that? I, I think they when they go to their life review, they feel very bad about what happened. They did, and they want to make amends, and they see that they messed up. You know, so you know. So when I see patients where you know they feel a lot of grief, I said, you know, now that he's dead, he's probably feeling terrible. So, so. Um, I have one more thing I want to say um, that I often pray when I don't know what to do. So let's say I'm in a session with a patient and I'm clueless. I say, I have no idea what to do next. So I connect. I said, please, uh, you know, tell me what to do. And uh, so something stuff comes out of my mouth that I have no idea where it came from. And in fact, other people witnessed it because I had a group, a supervision group of somatic experiencing, and the students would pair up and do a, a, a practice of somatic experiencing. So one day, one of the students was the client and the other uh, participant was uh, the therapist. So they started and um, so the client says he couldn't um, do his dissertation and he was stuck and uh, and that was the theme he wanted to work on. And within seconds, his anxiety hit the roof. He was like, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die. I can't, I can't, I can't finish the dissertation. And so the therapist looks at me, she says, what do I do now? And like, it really went, way beyond the window of tolerance and i didn't know what to do either so i prayed and i and then this is what came out of me do it even though you know you're going to die i don't know where this came from but and this anxiety dropped like that in this and how did you know to do to say that well everybody's like stunned or the whole group said well how do you do this? I said, I didn't know what I prayed and this is what came out. I said, we want to learn how to do this because we've seen you do this too many times. We want to learn how to do it. So it was like a very interesting um, experience. And when when people ask you, how do you do it? I said, I prayed. And I asked for guidance, I guess. I, I, I asked for help. That's uh, I pray is a lot of different things, but I yeah. uh, you ask for help. I I don't know what to do. So you what you do is open yourself up to a higher self that has yeah. a better perspective on the circumstances. Yes, and it comes, you know, it usually comes the. It just comes right out. Yeah, it's like yeah. you're you're. And, and I didn't. I never thought that thought. It just came out. It's a. It. it as a therapist, um, as I, as I am, um, it's not something that we would say because it it's a command, and we don't command people very often, uh, or at least me. I try to avoid that, uh, but I do. I mean, sometimes it's got to tell them, "Hey, come on, do this." So we have some of that, but that's that's a bit strange, but not that strange a therapeutic intervention. Uh, it's, it's accept what you're afraid of is a very common, uh, way of dealing with anxiety is, uh, is it's okay. It's going to happen. That tends to reduce 
the anxiety once you accept that it that's going to happen instead of fighting it all the time. Yeah, and the, yeah. it's better to to do it and be done with it than to 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 live like that in terror. It, it, be paralyzed. It's it's amazing how people with anxiety make their anxiety worse in that way by being mm -hmm. afraid of doing it and it's not going to work out somehow. That makes things worse. So it's a it's a good therapeutic in, intervention. But and you, he did do his dissertation, and he was fine, and everything went well. But, but it, um, yeah, that's what that's what's so. That's why that's, he was uh, blocked. In a way, you were saying it's okay to be afraid, but go ahead and do it. And it's all kinds of ways of thinking, but it's called paradoxical paradoxical intention. Viktor mm -hmm. Frankl came up with that idea um, as part of a therapy thing. It make the intention that's paradoxical, and you did that. But anyway. Uh, I think as a combination of your higher self, you're picking up what he needed and a basic um, therapeutic intervention that's out there, but mm. you didn't have access to. And when yeah, I talk it about too fast. It, it happened so quickly, I didn't have time to think, actually. But you didn't. It was good that you didn't have time to think. Mm. It was good that you didn't. I, I, I get a kick out of some of the stuff I say just when I'm where'd that come from kind of thing is we can tap in when we let our rationality not loosen up on that which is what your prayer did mm -hmm. i need help because i can't figure this out and you let something else come in there and where it comes from it's a combination of things well these are these are wonderful stories sheila um and we have time for some more. Uh, All right, I have one more, which is ridiculous. You're you're you're, you're like a comedian. Right. I got I got plenty of them stories. I got plenty yeah, of them jokes. Have... Okay. But this one was like crazy, and I have no idea what was going on. But so, shall I tell you? All right. Of course. So I'm um, I'm third year medical student, and I'm on vascular surgery rotation. And it was a Sunday morning. And the next day we had a huge exam. I don't remember if it was board, but something really very, very important. And so stupidly I go to, to the surgical floor and none of my, the other students showed up. Everybody called in sick or, or because everybody went, was going to study. So I wondered, I said, nobody's here. I'm stupid, why did I come? And I. Um, I, I wanted to leave. I said, I'm, I'm going to study. I'm, I'm leaving. I'm leaving. So the surgeon didn't want me to go. I said, no, no, you're staying. You're staying. But, uh, you know, and he insisted. And I finally said, like, almost like to get rid of him. <laughs> well, the only way I could say, if you let me do one, how, how dare I say such a thing? And I, I don't know how it came out of let, me. Let you do one what? Surgery. I used to sit, stand always on his left hand side. And I was watching him and he was, and I almost I memorized every gesture. I know what instruments he needed. I, I don't know how I absorbed this, but in any case, I said it and I didn't mean it. I just wanted him to let me go home and study because you know I was worried about the exam. So he yelled and screamed at me, you hold retractors. I held retractors for eight years and blah, blah, blah. I said, okay, I'll hold the chat. So we started seven in the morning until midnight, surgery after surgery after surgery. And he was exhausted. Now he is he was six foot something, six foot three or four. And I'm me, I, me, I'm like a, a little less than five feet. <laughs> so 
you know, and so he was tired. And so he collapsed on the chair. It was midnight. And he looks at me and said, you still want to do one? I was half asleep. So yeah. So they put two stools, one on top of the other, because I'm so little, I had to climb to the, but, and I, I had to do a, an amputation. And to this day, I don't know how I knew what to do. I did it all by myself. He was just watching. He didn't even come and help me. He was just watching. So I climb and I, you know, everything was by hand. You saw the bone, you um, had the tissues, you clip, you cauterize. I don't know how I did it. I still don't know how I did it. First, how I dared even taste what I said, but almost like the universe wanted me to do this. As we were, I was working, the anesthesiologist says, well, what do you want to do when you grow up? I said, I'm going to be a psychiatrist. What? That's not even medicine. Are you kidding me? And they were like, you're going to waste your talent. <laughs> what are you doing? So I said, you know, anybody can do these arms and legs things, you know, and you can fix the body. What good is a good body if nobody wants to live in it? I want to heal the soul. I want to... <laughs> I want to heal the, the mind. I want the person to be happy and enjoy life, you know, something like that. So they were really upset with me when I said that. End of story. Uh, the, the the story itself is, besides all the extra business, the tiredness is important part of this, why you're going into psychiatry. Um, those are all part of it but the the biggest thing again was that you were exhausted and you were able to do the surgery again there's something about what you're describing uh, of yourself where your rationality is not uh, is is aided a lot by other informants into what you do and this, what better example of it can this be? But you're exhausted. You have a big test. The surgeon's not even around almost mentally. And you're able to do something successfully, partly because you watched so carefully. You've been, you've been watching, you've watched those hand surgeons. So you knew a little bit about some detail about how to do things. And here you did something a little bigger, but you had the background for it. But then to put it all together at that moment is a remarkable, remarkable thing to have done. And Sheila, you clearly are able to, let me say, channel or allow new information to come into you when you need it. And that is a wonderful, wonderful aspect of your clinical practice and of your psyche and of your soul. So uh, I, I would like to see more psychiatrists being able to do what you have just been describing that you do. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're, you're very welcome. Uh, and as we as we come to the end of this, one of the questions that um, I sometimes like to ask is, um, what do you think living uh, the good life is, living a good life? Um, the good life is to, um, I, my life is about service. I think if I didn't have that, the meaning of my life would be different. So I like pe people say, what do you want? What do you love? What I said, it's not about me, it's about what 
what does God want from me? Well, you know, I'm here always, okay, what's next? What do you want me to do next? What do you want me to learn next? Uh, I'm here to serve and I'm very clear that this is very important to me. I'm not here just to enjoy myself and I love traveling. My my passion is traveling. So if you ask me, what do I love? I want to travel and make meet people and have fun. But I also have a part of me that's very, I need to be of service. So a combination of the two is perfect. Yeah, it's important to get away from being of service and, yes, yes. and serving yourself so you can come back and be of service. Uh, I serve even when I'm on vacation. I'm always working. I'm always helping somebody, whether it's a friend or a neighbor or or just my presence. Is uh, my my husband always says she she never stops. She's always working in in some form or another. I'm always helping. Why do you, why do you call it work? It's fun, I uh, because um because there are patients who you know they contact me all day long and I, I'm always helping somebody even though I'm I may be having fun too. Well, I think having fun with helping is uh, and really helping and learning while you're helping. I mean, because part of the fun for me is learning how things yes, work. Yes, yes, it's true. I'm a seeker. And you're a seeker, and you and you know very well, as do I. Your patients are big teachers. Yes, absolutely. Yes, yeah. Well, I, I enjoyed the whole journey. For me, it was wonderful. And you're still you're still doing on the journey here. It looks like oh, to me, yes. <laughs> you still are. So we've we've come to the end of our session, and thank you, you very you, much. You're mm -hmm. you're. <laughs> You're welcome. And uh, why are you thanking me anyway? Because it's, I never talk about these things. So with you, I had a chance to, you know, tell somebody. Uh, you never talk about these things. Um, not much. Um, you know, most people don't ask me what I do, or what, uh, what I think, how, you know, they. Well, they're crazy not to ask because you've got some wonderful, wonderful stories and you tell them so well. So uh, I thank you for being on the on the show. But now I understand why it was so good for you, too. Uh, and I'm going to invite you when we're off the we're off to consider attending the Coincidence Cafe and uh, right. where, where people will want to hear some of your stories. And I, so thank you very much for being thank with you. me. And for for getting over what you were worried about when we started, you were wonderful, and uh, you've got thank some you. great stories. So thank you, Sheila. I appreciate. It. Thank you very much. This is our mental atmosphere, like a hologram of cosmic consciousness.